Hey, Lisa, did you ever read a book called Lord of the Flies in school? The book about the boys trapped on an island? Yeah. Yeah, they had to set up some society sort of. And the point of the book is that these boys get trapped on an island and that uh, they start to create societies that are similar to our societies, including you know, all the greed, the jealousy, and all the human problems that come with the human condition um, follows you wherever you go. I think that's the point of the book. And even at the end, when the naval ship appears to rescue them, you know, the final question is like, and who will rescue the naval ship? Because they have started wars with other countries and so on. But anyway, I didn't read those books in schools because in my school, because I went to a very substandard school that I won't even mention, um, Woodward High School, um, (laughs) where I didn't really learn much of anything. So uh, what I did learn there was that nobody really cared to show uh, enough concern. Uh, So I just went went along, you know, enough to get a passing grade. Uh, I had no idea really at that time what the world had to offer. And they certainly didn't show me that the world was bigger than what I knew. Yeah, I, I, I went to one of the top high schools. So, um, you know, they insisted we read things. Yes. Um, <laughs> so we read, well, you know, what I guess is considered the, you, you know, important classics or what have you. Yeah, you went to one of the top five schools in the state. So you, on the other hand, would have uh, learned. I actually ended up spending my entire senior year uh, in a home economics class. What? That was the main class? I don't understand. Yeah. No, I mean, in the morning, uh, from the time you go to school to the time they let you out of school, I was being taught how to cook. So, and I had to go get a job because that it was, they didn't hand me the college material. Um, Actually, they even denied me the college manual when I asked my counselor for it. So, um, I ended up in college and anyway, and I had to take basic writing class like three times because I couldn't write and um, really not bitter. Like, can you tell? (laughs) Right. Relax. Take take it easy. I know. I just want to say, you know, thank the Lord for my personality of just stubbornness and disobedience which can be a virtue under the right circumstances because those virtues, you know, are because I stand here today uh, because of those virtues with my PhD and many, many written publications later. Yes, I know that's right. I know, I know, girl, because we don't have time to go into the whole school system and oppression and, and not playing fair whatever, but type of thing or erroneous beliefs that, you know, people start out at the same gate. Like there's some people out there that believe everybody starts out at the same gate and it's just really, you have to put the steam behind you uh, to pursue your own dream and all that kind of stuff. But I mention all of that to say that the guest today also faced barriers. She was a foster kid who was just turned loose after she became an adult and she couldn't even balance a checkbook 
or really know how to pay a bill. I mean, this was back in the day. And she ended up getting a minimum wage job uh, and couldn't even afford to pay her bill. So she became a stripper and then a, a victim of sex trafficking. But that's not even the story for today. That's just like a little background filler. She graduated college, summa cum laude. She graduated magna cum laude. And, you know, I graduated, thank God I'm done, laude. But <laughs> she graduated co-valedictorian. But that's not even the story. So her name is B.A. Crisp, not a real name, because she's going to talk about what she does. And then we're going to discuss it on the back end. So here's my interview with B.A. Crisp. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast. This week we have B.A. Crisp, and she does some really interesting work. She's based in D.C. right now. She's in Florida, but I don't even want to give it away. I'm going to let her tell you a lot about it because she, we're going to start out with, she has some books. So I just want to talk about some of the books you have. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, some of the books that you have? Yes. So the first book, which is my inaugural novel, is a fiction work um, based on a human trafficking victim. Her, ma- her name is Samantha. And she actually doesn't realize she's being trafficked, which I think happens in a lot of human trafficking cases. Um, the book is called Redbird by B.A. Crisp, and she takes revenge on her trafficker. And then she winds up um, she in she winds up in a situation with other foster kids and they have to share their stories. And it's a diverse group of children that come from, well, they're not children, they're adolescents that come from all over the globe. Um, It's book one in a series. And I was really pleased that it did uh, become an Amazon Amazon bestseller. Uh, That was us. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's loosely based, very loosely based on, um, my life as a uh, foster child and a former um, victim, although I, I, I've never liked the word victim and I don't really care. I told your assistant, I don't really care for the word survivor either. I think of myself as a thriver. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Absolutely. And so you, and that's why you go by the name B.A. Chris, because of some of the work that you do as well. But tell us a little bit about this series, because that sounds so interesting. So what how many how many are in the series and then how does it progress along? Um, So they grow up. So these these kids that are just from these diverse cultures, one from the Amazon, one from the Sahara, um, one is from Nepal, one in, you know, one is from Chicago. And there are 12 altogether. One comes from the Arctic uh, Circle and and he's a reindeer herder. But all these children in Indonesia and they all come together, but then they grow up through the series and some of them go into peace work and some of them go into law enforcement. So some of them go in and they're all bound together by an unfortunate incident that is a, it's, it's a major human trafficking enterprise. So what I was trying to do, um, was take some of the, uh, stories that I had heard and some of the success stories and some of the unfortunate stories and create very much a fictionalized uh, series 
about human, the plight of human trafficking victims and the teams that are involved and the indicators that might be involved in the grooming, the unfortunate grooming process and the cruelty. So um, I did receive a little pushback on book one uh, because there is a scene in that book that is very raw. And I did have one lady approach me and she said, I just didn't like that sex scene. And I said, this, first of all, that's not what that is. That's a crime. That's a crime. And she said, well, why would you, you write that so in your face? And I said, because human trafficking is raw. Human trafficking is raw. And I remember a federal agent telling me, and he, he's actually, um, he's actually overseas right now. And he said to me, BA, I wish that people would tell, you know, they, they sugarcoat the stories too much. And, and he said, I think it has more impact. Um, when, when we can, we don't need to use a lot of curse words, but I think that we need to tell the story. And he played an audio for me that I will never forget for the rest of my life. And it was a victim. She was victim and it was, um, and she had given permission, which I think is important too, that, of, that uh, Thriver participates in their plan. And she had given permission for this audio to be recorded after she'd gone or to be shared. Um, and she was talking about how her pimp, um, every night he rented a mansion. He rented a mansion in a suburb of Tampa. And every night he would bring these, the, the lady who brought the least amount of money home um, from the streets was beaten in front of the other ones as an example. And she was dragged uh, uh, to up to a pool where he was holding her head down and she never thought she'd see her child again. And, and the, the fear and the pain and the trauma in her voice, I will never forget that as long as I live. Um, but she was able to come back from that. I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, I'm sorry if it harms somebody's disposition or ruins their day or putting reality in their face, but this is the reality. And I think being able to describe it in a real and raw way, but also in the artistic way that you do in your book as you roll out the stories. Um, is something that you get the person to connect with these, these players in the book as mm -hmm. human beings. And once you connect someone as a human being, and then you see their struggle, you see their victimization, then it's no longer a number to you. It's no longer a, a 101 presentation to you. It gets very, very real. Yes. And that, and I, that's what I wanted to do with Samantha. And, and I also wanted her because, you know, she is in a, she's locked into a certain culture and she, uh, now she's suddenly having to, um, to, to learn about diverse cultures. And one of the things she says in the book is I can't imagine having someone telling me I have to leave Africa. And that was what she used because she meets a, a young lady from Africa, someone telling me I have to pack up all my things and leave the U.S. and go live in some foreign country where I've never been and don't speak the language and don't understand the culture. And I think when you really think about what some of these victims go through when they are moved across borders, when they when when you take um, uh 
a Eastern European lady and you move her down into uh, Central America or you take an American, um, uh, which there's, you know, there's another uh, story. And I learned about this on a plane and I ended up calling HSI because I ended up, I was flying home with someone and they had been in Algiers and they were, a, a, they were a, an oil uh, rig supervisor and they had come across a place. He said, I had to go retrieve some of my men from this place that they called in Algiers, the four floors of horse. That's what they called it. And, and he said, and he was a bit ashen and, and disturbed. And he said, I saw American girls there and they were let out. And I don't understand what this is and what's going on. So we got, you know, I, we kept talking and he actually agreed to talk to HSI. So I was really, uh, you know, happy about that, that he, he had the courage to make the report. And, and that's another thing too. There are a lot of people, I don't want to get involved or I think it's tough. They live in denial when they see something, but they're afraid to say something because they don't want to bother um, federal or local law enforcement. And the agents tell me all the time, I would rather be bothered with something that turns out to be nothing than not be bothered and have it be something. Absolutely. And people can call, you know, the 1-800 at 888-373-7888 just anonymously if they don't even want to be connected um, to anything. But so tell us about what's the name of the first book again? And then how many other books are there after the first book? Uh, there will be, we suspect, <laughs> there will be five books total. Um, the first book is called Redbird, uh, and there's a cardinal that plays a role, and there's a little bit of a, a supernatural going on there too, and 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 um, or divine intervention, I might say, we might say, and the first book is called Redbird. Uh, the second book, which is about to be released, we're we're hoping within two months. Um, it's called X point. Um, and, and there's, if, if you know, physics X point is, uh, a portal and they do exist. So it's, you know, a portal to free. My idea was it's a portal to freedom. So, and there's, um, something behind that, but now the, all of the foster kids that were, um, part of this NASA plum hook bay, uh, they were raised behind the gates of NASA Plumhook Bay, and it was a bit of an experiment with gifted foster children is, is what um, happened. And that I based on some, a real event that was declassified by the CIA called MK Ultra, where they were um, where they were um, performing experiments without informed consent on American citizens in the 60s and 70s and early 80s. Oh, wow. so. I love that you have rolled in. So much, a little bit of supernatural, a little bit of science, the story mm -hmm. of human trafficking, the, the care that we develop over time for the kids as they grow up. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that is really a creative way, I think, to bring people into the fold and educate them on what's happening in, in our communities, but also around the world. I think yeah. that's a great, that's, that's really good. Um, I didn't want to draw. You know, I didn't want to draw conclusions for people because life isn't black or white. Life is, to me, life is multicolored. That's how I see it. It's multicolored. And I wanted Sam 
to be confronted with and also to have to digest certain things. And then I wanted all of the characters to have, um, you know, obviously we all have flaws, we're human, but I also wanted them to have their strengths and to be able to counter her intelligently. You know, I really didn't want any, um, I, I don't know what, how to describe it other than I didn't want to, I didn't want to do any caricatures because people aren't caricatures. They, they have most people, if you take the time to speak with them one-on-one, they have intellect, they have depth, they have passion, they have focus, um, they have promise. So, Absolutely. yeah. So tell us what you do um, other than a uh, very successful and creative writer. What do you do uh, in terms of, I read something about the Coast program that you're involved in. Yeah. What is that? Yeah. So Coast, I, I received a lot of pushback about Coast. So when I was a foster kid um, and I was released or, you know, let loose, I guess, from the system, it was a shame back then. And I understand it's changed considerably, but I was, um, I left the, the court system. I didn't know how to write a check. I didn't know how credit worked. I didn't know how, um, I didn't know how, uh, uh, I didn't know how to enroll in college. And um, all I wanted to do was go to college. But I also, I took a job at minimum wage, which I was, to me, there's, I'm sorry, but there's nothing worse to me than being a victim of minimum wage. You cannot make ends meet. And then people say, well, those jobs aren't meant for that. They're stepping stones. And I get it. And when you have no skill sets, but you can't go to college, I became a dancer a stripper. Let's call it what it is. That's what I did. And um, as I uh, was in that industry, you know, I kept hearing about human trafficking and I did use the, that industry as a stepping stone into college. And I graduated summa cum laude from Ursuline College. But before that, I went to Eastern campus at um, Tri-C. It was Cuyahoga Community College. And um, I graduated magna cum laude there, and I had a wonderful professor who um, saw something, and and she encouraged me to apply at Ursuline, and I received a scholarship, um, and then went on to my master's at the George Washington University. So when I got to the master's program at George Washington University, um, and my shameless plug is, yes, I really graduated as co-valedictorian of my political management school. <laughs> so awesome. I'm very proud of that. But, um, um, but the, and you're talking about a foster kid who just never thought she was going to go to college. So um, while I was in graduate school and I was looking at the industry and I was trying to find a project, um, I started with brothels. And I thought, I really want to know what why women go to these brothels or why they choose to work. Do they choose to work? And I, so I started my studies like in Central and South America and Mexico and in Costa Rica, prostitution's legal. Um, my focus completely changed um, and I was more geared toward the prostitution aspect of it. And a couple of things happened. One was I saw a lot of foreign nationals in an American-owned bar where prostitution was legal, and that was surprising to me. Two, I didn't know what human trafficking was. Um, uh, and three, I saw a lot of American men going into the bar and taking off their wedding rings, which I thought was a weird psychological thing for them to be doing, um, particularly if they're married. Why bother if you're 
what's the difference? Does this somehow make you less culpable? <laughs> so, so I, um, changed my focus when, uh, a gentleman named Tony said he was my driver and my translator. And he said, I want to show you something. Um, and he took me to an area of San Jose, uh, where this little girl was 10 years old. And, um, well, let's just suffice it to say she came out of the darkness, no shoes on, a dress too big for her. And at 10 years old, her job, she was sold repeatedly up to 10 times a night. And I wanted to take her with me. And I couldn't because uh, at the time it was corrupt and I couldn't get her. I couldn't get her out or I would be held accountable for doing something nefarious. And, um, and that broke my heart. So I left her the money I had so she wouldn't have to work that night. Um, but it enraged me too, because that money was going to a trafficker, not to her. And, and it was, I don't know whatever happened to her. And, um, and that's the first time I've told that story without just breaking down uh, in tears, but it completely changed my focus. So going to coast, um, I had always heard, well, the strip club industry, they're natural purveyors of sex trafficking. It's rampant. NGOs told me this. Elected officials told me that. Law enforcement said it was true. And um, I said, wow, I, you know, what is the issue here? So the first issue I discovered was that a lot of people that work in the strip club industry do not know and did not know what human trafficking was. They didn't know the definitions. They didn't understand it. Like most people out there, they think, oh, that's taking people across borders. That's not trafficking. Uh, it can turn into trafficking. But um, uh, so they didn't understand that. The second thing that we discovered when we were studying uh, the industry was that there was a host of um, there was a host of clubs that weren't doing appropriate age verification. So you were getting and it's unfortunate you were getting these minors that would slip through. We also had an ins we had a few instances such as in Miami where someone at the license bureau was issuing real licenses for minors to show that they were older than they were and the club was trying to do due diligence and the lady was getting, you know, a kickback from a pimp to to issue these real IDs which weren't real but they were real if that makes sense. But um uh, so that was part of the issue. So I formed this program and uh, I wanted to do a training program called Coast. It's not designed to be a free pass. And um, and I thought, I want to teach the women in the industry about human trafficking, about indicators and the people who work in this, industry, not just the women, but the men too. Uh, and what I realized and going back to what we said at the beginning of our conversation, um, people generally want the same things and they're generally they're good-hearted um and i learned that about people in this industry they don't want to see they have kids they don't want to see people abused um the other thing that we learned was they were lumping in in the statistics they were lumping the illicit cantinas in with the license clubs and that was kind of blowing up the numbers and a lot of ngos would use that in order to get more grant money and some of those NGOs were taking that grant money um, and they were using a lot of it on 
travel. So when you get a million dollar grant and you spent $345,000 on first class travel and hotels and meals, I have a problem with that. And this is what I told the science and technology directorate, $345,000 out of a million dollar grant goes a long way in direct victims services. So I didn't want to see that duplication of effort. Coast is free. I make no money from it. Uh, I didn't want to lead the trainings, though, because I'd been in the industry. I didn't want people to say, oh, she's a hack for the, um, uh, you know, she paid hack for the industry or whatever. And um, I went to the FBI first and they said, get lost. And as I'm working on this program, I had a, a professor, Ben Zingman. He's he's amazing. And he was pretty tough on me. And um, he liked the program. And the next thing I know, or the idea of it, and the next thing I know, I got a phone call um, from DHS headquarters. And they asked me if I could be there that day. And I said, am I in trouble? <laughs> so she, and she said, well, no, you got 10 minutes with um, the Honorable Alice Hill staffer, uh, who is general counsel to Janet Napolitano. And I, I was like, wow, okay. So we go in and I'm telling you from out of nowhere, no one saw this coming. This snowstorm blew in. It was a blizzard like you wouldn't believe. And we were cap. I had a captive audience, and not only did I have staffers and federal agents there, we had the Honorable Alice Hill herself. And ninety minutes, ninety minutes. Oh wow! I know, which is highly unusual if you work in D.C. Um, so, as I'm working, or as I'm telling her the presentation, and I finish, she's she gives me the what I call the awkward twenty minutes of silence. And I thought, oh, she doesn't like this at all. And she never said a word. And I, my heart is just beating. <laughs> and she finally said, I love it. And she looked at her agents and she said, I want you to give her what she needs. Oh, and wow. Uh, yeah. And yeah. so do you, do you do the work? The work that you do, is it in the D.C. area or all over? Or where is it's it? all over. So it's taken me to Moscow. It's taken me to almost every major metropolitan area in the U.S. Um, we, we have codified COAST. Um, so the city of Houston requires COAST training for every adult entertainment, every adult club worker, whether they're an entertainer or not, they require it once a year. And they wrote that into their local ordinance. Um, the, amazing. Yeah, in Louisiana, the state wrote it in, codified it in their state law. And they have to do it twice a year. So the agents, federal agents lead the training sessions. And it's usually federal agents from Homeland Security Investigations, not to be mistaken with immigration. And, you know, I've talked to agencies say, yeah, we're, we, we don't do immigrate. That's not what we are. Um, we do investigations and we have they have a what's called a victim centered approach. Um, uh, so they lead the trainings. We have worked with the FBI and we have worked with the, with the state police. We've worked with local uh, police, local law enforcement as well. And I felt it was important for the law enforcement to lead the trains, not just any law enforcement, though, but people that had been particularly trained in the trenches of battling against human trafficking. And um, and I will say this, too, because uh, I, I like female agents because I think they relate well to the dancers and in some dancers feel more comfortable talking to male agents and some feel more comfortable talking to female agents. But I, I realized something um, because we did one of these trainings with 
agents uh, at a at-risk school uh, for girls called PACE, the PACE Center for Girls, which I love the school. And um, they're a for-profit model, which enabled us to do this training. And it was packed house. And um, one of the things that really struck me, which I thought was incredible, were the lady, the young ladies between 12 and 17 were coming up to me going, Miss, 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 she's got a gun and a bat. She's, they'd never seen a female federal agent. (laughs) And they, and all of a sudden it, it just blew their minds. And it was, I could do this too. And it's, yeah, you could. It absolutely, you could. So there was this wonderful side inspiration that took place. And, and, you know, and, and I, I think it's really cool too, to put human beings together face to face so that they can see they're human beings and they're not sub sub other, or, you know, because we tend to, we tend to stereotype, particularly people who work in the strip club industry. We have this, um, you know, we, we, we have certain connotations that it's intuitively noxious and everyone who works there must be a horrible person. And, and it's just, it's not the case. And, and so I think that kids need to see it to believe it. I mean, I would not have a PhD. I dreamed of having a PhD, but it didn't even get real to me until I walked into uh, Case Western University and I saw like, here's a black guy. He has a Pete. Here's a woman. And I was like, wait, uh-huh. I walked up to him and I said, what do you do here? And he said, I teach here. I was like, and you have a doctorate? He was, yeah. <laughs> you know, like what's wrong with you? But I think to see it, you have to see it to even believe that that could be a part of your life. But one thing I would add is, you know, I think it's awesome that the federal agents are going in educating, you know, hopefully non-judgmentally, I'm guessing, but educating. But I think they really are missing the jewel in the crown. Like, I really think you need to be, I mean, if I were running the world, you would be the the kingpin um, in this operation just because of the way, uh, just because you've grew, grown up through the foster care system, you've uh, been a, a victim of, a, of this crime, you've also been in the clubs, employed in the clubs. I mean, you bring the authenticity. I mean, I know you're likely consulting with with the people who do this work, but, you know, I think um, in some respects, they're burying the lead. They need to have you as uh, the lead, the face of it, the, the person going in there. Are you doing any of that? I, I really don't, because one of the things that now I mediate, I go to I go to probably almost every meeting that we had face to face. COVID really struck coast down very hard. I will say this though, one of my favorite agents of all time, and she's amazing. She did a lot of work in Columbia and now she's heading the human trafficking, um, the anti-human trafficking unit in DC at headquarters, um, paying her dues at headquarters, they call it. So she's uh, pretty amazing. And I'm hoping that, um, you know, as more people are vaccinated and COVID and, and we do get, we will get to a point where there's herd immunity and things at some point will have to go back to normal or some semblance of normalcy that we will be able to reinstitute in-person coast meetings. Um, you know, we could make a video, but it's very important 
to look people in the eye and be face to face. Do I get involved? Yes. I act as a mediator. I tell people I I'm Switzerland. And one of the things that I was asked when we first started, this is do not wave banners and do not, um, and do not, uh, you know, go to the press. Um, and I do know that HSI did some press in the past. Um, and then one of the agents, I, I did get nominated as the, uh, um, there was some award and it was a, a, for meeting mandates of White House and Congress under the Obama administration for uh, the battle against human trafficking. I didn't get the award, but it was still great to be nominated. And they felt that they were okay then at that point with with Coast, um, you know, with Coast being highlighted that way, and we got highlighted on in, on, Cap, on the uh, Capitol Hill in the Blue Campaign. They had a they had a little newsletter, so you know that that that's nice. You have so much to offer in terms of being the genuine article, in terms of the knowledge that you have, the creativity that you have, the passion, the commitment that you have. To this issue. Um, yeah, if I were running the world, you would be running it, you would be in the rooms, they would be paying you handsomely. So <laughs> you can get a degree like what you have, the background that you have, you you couldn't find that. That would be difficult to find. And um, yeah, that's just my, you know, but I'm I'm like that. I will go around telling people exactly what they should be doing with their lives, but you know. But I think that is an awesome program. I just think they 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 need to pick the jewel up and put it in the center of the crown. But <laughs> I think it's it's an awesome program. And so what is it? I mean, what's in store for BA Crisp, you know, in the future? What do you see on the horizon? So right now I'm writing books, we're doing speaking engagements, and I tie in the human trafficking. So in one way, I am doing trainings outside of the club now for HOAs, uh, because I think that's important too. What's and, an HOA? What is uh, like a, a homeowners associations, okay. like big, big groups. Like the last one I was at uh, was at Riverstone. And there's a uh, lady there named Tammy who put it together. She manages it. And wow, what an upbringing she had in Brooklyn. And I would love to highlight her story because she's a success story. So that's what I'm, that's where I'm hoping to go. As I write the series, I do want to write other things uh, about people who have, are thrivers, that they are thrivers. And I know it's difficult for people to sometimes tell their story, but imagine like she was, you know, she was the um, product of an affair, uh, of an illicit affair, and then was raised by the stepmother, who wasn't very kind, unfortunately. And you know, I didn't, I don't want it um, to be the stereotypical stepmother story, but, but um, wow, did she really um, uh, go through a lot? But she surmounted it too, and was able to even come back around and have a relationship. Uh, uh, which I thought was pretty incredible. What's the HOA angle? How did how did you get involved with HOA, and why why are they interested in knowing more about human trafficking? How did that all come about? Well, I credit um, a, a dynamic woman named Denise Murphy. So Denise is the at, at a, in Naples, Florida. She runs uh, the Laley Players Club, and there are a lot of wonderful women there who are very. Fil- 
philanthropic. Um, and she invited me to do a book signing and we decided let's, let's do it. Let's tag it with a human trafficking training. And, um, and it was a packed house and we realized, wow, we think we're onto something here. People want to know about this. They want to learn about it. They do not want it in their community. And I tell them, it can happen anywhere. So in Naples, Florida, we actually had a situation where two doctors who lived in town in a gated community held a woman captive for 20 years as a domestic. And the only place she was allowed to go, and she slept in a closet, by the way, and the only place she was allowed to go was to church on Sundays. And it was the pastor of that church who recognized something was off and began talking to her. And she was rescued after 20 years. And I tell people, it can happen around the corner. It can happen next door to you, which has happened, um, you know, in, in Southwest Florida. Um, but, you know, and I, and, and it's paradise. It's, you know, they call it, oh, it's paradise. And, and I think one of the things that gets a little bit irritating is, it's always going to be paradise, but I don't think you need to hide this stuff from the news and it doesn't make it into the news. And, and, and then it just allows this crime to perpetuate. Now to their credit in Collier County, they did put together a specific anti-human trafficking unit that did some great work. And I actually volunteered with the sheriff's office on that unit. Um, a few years ago, I don't do it anymore, but, um, uh, but I think it's important for law enforcement to be trained. And I also think it's very important for them to be trained in community engagement. You learn more by being nice to people than you do by being a, a tough guy or girl. Um, sometimes you got to be. Sometimes you got to be tough. But I, I think that um, there are people in, the, in any community who can act as your eyes and ears or an extension of intelligence to stop a crime like this. Absolutely. Because you wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. How, how can people get a hold of your first book and when is your second book coming out? Well, we're hoping the second book will be out in two months. I, I ha, I'm working on edits, but I'm also working. So, so it's really, I, it's finding that time. I make the time, but it's really, I have to narrow the focus here, but Redbird is available in most bookstores, Blackwell's in the UK, Barnes and Noble. It's available on Amazon. Um, it's an ebook. The Kindle lending library has it for free. Um, the, and you can also get it in paperback too, um, on Amazon. So most bookstores, uh, books a million sells it. Uh, I'm trying to think Dy Dynamox in Australia, a portion of proceeds for the book goes to support Path to Freedom's Magnolia House, which is a long-term care facility for minor victims of sex trafficking. And my friend, Anna Stevenson, is responsible for doubling the number of beds in Florida for minor victims of sex trafficking. And it's not just a campus. This place is a gorgeous home with horses and art and music therapy. And the interviews are conducted there because they want the, the ladies, the young ladies to feel safe. And now they have plans for more homes and particularly for boy victims, which I think are grossly underserved. Um, so yeah. So a portion of the proceeds of the book do, do go to help Magnolia house with direct services. You are awesome. Her book, uh, Redbird, sounds really good. Uh, not just a book about her experience as a victim, which there are a lot of good ones out there, of course, but this is really good on another level. 
Yeah. And that's why I mentioned the book, Lord of the Flies in the beginning, because I think her description reminds me a little bit of that, that book, but in her book, nobody's stranded on a desert Island, but they're all bound together by their trafficking experience, like 12 kids. Uh, I think one from the Amazon, the Sahara, I think she said Nepal, um, Chicago, Arctic Circle, Indonesia, and a couple of others. Mm -hmm. And it's really clever the way she figures out a way to tell the story around the world. I'm like really interested in reading how she weaves the various kind of cultures together. And yeah, so they're kind of the kids are all drawn together because of some disruption of a major human trafficking enterprise. And then she hints that there is some divine intervention or a kind of supernatural kind of intervention that may have to do with the red bird or something, maybe. Mm -hmm. And what did you think about uh, MX Ultra? That was kind of scary, right? Yeah, I know. I, I looked that up and it's really the history of what we would do to people in the name of science is really terrifying and just shameful. And, you know, that's why we all now as researchers have to do ethics training and, um, you know, so that we don't get out there doing crazy things like that to hurt people and traumatize people in the name of science. And every few years, um, I have to redo my ethics training, which is, you know, most of the times I'm like, why am I wasting my time doing this again? But then I read things like the MK Ultra experiments. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's why. So that people don't go out there and shock people and torture people and give them all kinds of drugs in the process, you know, just crazy. But so what do you think about the uh, coast program that they do? Um, I mean, every drop of water, you know, creates the ocean, right? So I think they're contributing to, you know, helping vulnerable people stay knowledgeable and safe, which is good. Um, however, I do like your point about her being the lead, though. Yeah, right. She's amazing. And she's so kind and humble, you know, maybe too humble. And I really do think that they're burying the lead. I mean, she needs to be upfront and out there. She needs to be talking to the kids. Uh, and, you know, I guess kids could be impressed with seeing uh, like a female federal agent like that would be kind of awesome. But I mean, in some respects, it's very cool and awesome. But in other respects, like the pro the presence of an officer with a gun uh, can be, you know, re-triggering, traumatizing. It can distance kids, you know, given their experience, their neighborhoods. Um, I, I can't really see all the kids connecting with that kind of presence in the classroom. So I don't know about that. Also, I think just her being a former foster kid um, would just resonate so much more. But, you know, I'm not running the world, so. Right. And I agree, because going into strip clubs, like, you know, I'm sure Homeland Security makes, you know, an impression on you, right? Mm -hmm. um, like, hey, we want to do a presentation on trafficking for you, uh, Mr. Strip Club owner. You know, it's like, well, shit, uh, guess come on, come on in. Um, you know, I, I'm just not sure how that how that's coming off. Like on one hand, I guess it's like, we're coming to you in like a friendly collaborative way. Uh, Cause you are, you know, a legitimate business owner, mm -hmm. uh, but it's gotta be a little threatening, you know, like, and don't let us come back here in an unfriendly way. You know? Yeah, I know. I know. But if she were leading the training, I think it would have a different tone 
because she's authentic and passionate and she has a life experience and she can relate with the women in the club, uh, even the owner and be able to educate, but speak from her heart and her past experience, not as a hack, you know, for the man, but as a genuine, authentic person that, that worked that job and also use that job to parlay and create a stepping stone for her to live her dream, which was to pay for college and, and, you know, have a college degree. Right. And you, like, what about her meeting in DC? Like to sell the whole idea. Wasn't that really cool? Oh, that was awesome. That gave me chills because the story was like amazing and, and a, like a divine intervention type of story. So she got 90 minutes in the white house when it was supposed to be 10 minutes that is amazing. And that awkward silence she described before the, before the person said, I love it. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, I always appreciate a good storyteller, you know, and B.A. is definitely a good storyteller. Yeah. And in the end, I think B.A. Chris, like, I love it. Like, I would be saying, give her what she needs. And so I'll end this episode by saying, B.A., you should be running the program. You should be writing the rest of your series. I can't wait to read it. And you should not be volunteering for presentations, but you should be getting paid very well. So you know what I would say? Give her what she needs. Let's not just do something. Let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.